Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast, Getting to Better Together, sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership of the University of the Sunshine Coast, and I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding any further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respect to their elders, past, present, and those who will emerge as the future unfolds. And it's to the unfolding future that we again turn our attention in this episode. How do we prepare the young folk of today to assume leadership under tomorrow's circumstances, which we can only currently begin to imagine? Evidence already abounds that they have to deal with critical situations much more pressing and ever more impactful on the world about them than anything that previous generations, including ours, of course, have had to face. Almost certainly, for instance, today's climate will be tomorrow's climate crisis. Education will be a major factor for future readiness. And in this regard, what should we be teaching in our schools and universities today? And how should our students be taught? What should be the substance of our curricula for these leaders of the future? And what do we believe that they will need to know in order to be effective leaders under these unfolding circumstances? What processes should we use to best effect, particularly as emerging technologies already continue to transform the way that we communicate with each other? The COVID-19 pandemic has already given some indication of the changes in process that will be necessary in this latter regard, with a focus on e-learning, remote studies, blended learning, virtual classes, uh, and so on. And an increasing embrace of what is being referred to as learning for sustainability. And this is triggering significant changes in the school curriculum. My guest this morning has a number of vital takes on all of these issues, from educational transformation through to the nature and significance of the matter of leadership itself. Don McConaughey, who holds the status of Distinguished Companion of the University of the Sunshine Coast, has a lifetime experience with educational reform at schools and at universities alike, which have been informed by very rich theoretical foundations. For all that, his approaches to change in regard to these issues and those like them are firmly grounded in practice. He certainly fulfills the criteria of what might be called a scholar-practitioner. So his concerns are not just about identifying what needs to be done, but how we need to act to get them done. A very warm welcome, Don. Thank you very much, Richard, and thank you for having me. Over your life's work in education, what major transformations have you noted in in the what's and the how's of teaching in our schools and universities in response to changing circumstances in the world about us? That's a very big question to start with. Um, So a lot of the transformations haven't been very good, um, as I've observed them, um, but there's been a counterbalancing development of a whole lot of innovation as well. So perhaps I should mention a bit of both. Please do. It seems to me that uh, the words um, living in a time of, uh, education in a time of schooling uh, are very apt. And I think we've confused education with schooling in a lot of ways. And um, we've put a lot of energy and effort into the schooling side and therefore Um, We've got basically people who are economists and people who've got political agendas having very big influences over what happens in classrooms at all levels of education. And I think we've seen teachers' influence um, and the people around them, parents and the community, squeezed out as um, economists and politicians and their ilk have come to dominate. And that's led to all sorts of negative effects and we're living through one of them now with the battle over the new version of the national curriculum 
And I have a bit of a problem with the whole idea of a national curriculum. Say more about that. Well, fundamentally, I think we should give education back to the teachers. The national curriculum strikes me as just another third level level of interference um, in what is really the professional activity of of, um, semi-autonomous professionals who are very well trained and know what they're doing and should be allowed to get on with it. They need to be given the resources and they'll get the job done. Um, But... That's not how we treat it. We, we treat them as if there's something wrong with them and we need right. to make things teacher-proof, yes. like curricula. Right. Of course, they're not teacher-proof because no matter what they come up with, the national curriculum, it'll all get worked out at the school level anyway right. and um, the students will have something to say about it as well and so will the parents and other stakeholders. So this battle that's going on at the moment about the sort of mini-history war, yes. again... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, the, story, the teachers who teach history will be having a good old chuckle and life will go on in the classroom. But it's sad because all of the resources that go into all of this and all of the energy that go into this could be much better used and teachers would know what to do with those resources if they were given to them. Right. I, I recall well, actually, reading about the, the, the new history debates uh, and I recall well when I was a really young kid, eight or nine, I guess, at primary school, being introduced to the idea uh, of history and geography and so on. And uh, all the pink bits on the map, yep. we were told, were ours. I'm not quite sure what ours were, but anyway, the, you know, the sun never set on the British Empire or whatever. And our history was taught within that context of how successful England had been. I was in, in school in England. Uh, and then incredibly factual, like why did William the Conqueror invade in 1066? And as if you had to say, well, I know that, you know, or the teacher says, I know that. But clearly the teacher didn't know that and shouldn't take your point. It should have been, you know, that this is an interpretation of, and that's open to question. Well, um, at the other end of the colonial exercise, um, we grew up here in Australia looking at the pink bits on the map, and we were really glad we were a pink bit. Yeah, you were one of them, <laughs> that's right, one of the biggest. And we thought, oh, there's Canada and there's America, so, you know, we're with the strength here. Um, but, of course, as you um, move into your teens and you start to wake up politically and socially, uh, you start to wonder <laughs> why we're down under. We've got this sort of down-under view of how, how things worked. But it's, it's, um, it's still early days, I think, of... Um, Australia coming to terms with its indigenous past mm. and schoolings where a lot of it will happen and a lot of it will happen despite what the politicians try to do to right. stop it I think. Right uh, and in a sense everything then the more I think about history and I, I'm just rereading Josephine Flood's book on um, the original Australians which is absolutely fabulous I mean it's just um, politically incorrect in all sorts of different ways as would be said today but it's, it's a wonderful anthropological study from which one can then start questioning things like what do we mean by progress? Uh, what do we mean by development? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, Very loaded terms. Absolutely, yes. Um, unfortunately, though, there's a bit of a reaction to the loading that says, well, you shouldn't use those words at all, mm. which leaves us without a language to talk about right. those things. So um, I think it's very important to talk about development, but we need to be clear about what we mean about it. I'm, I'm reading another book at the moment... Um, which uses the word enoughness. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's gorgeous. You know, that if we but focused on enoughness, and if I then project that back onto my understanding of what Josephine Flood is saying about Aboriginals, yep. that's the way it was. Well, there was enoughness. the concept of subsistence affluence, I right. think. Uh, yeah. 
Um, yeah, say more about that. That's well, I don't know a lot about it. Um, it's it's an anthropological term, I guess, originally, um, and that's not an area that I've studied. But um, when I was doing some work in social science in my degree on Papua New Guinea and Australia's relationship with in involvement in the development of Papua New Guinea, the Matungan Association was having a big battle in Bougainville, and the battle's still going, of course. But um, I think uh, Bougainville's semi-independent maybe more than that now so uh, things have advanced to that extent but there was an attempt to try and um, re-establish the importance of the local economy based around agriculture and the idea of subsistence affluence was was an important part of that argument because well according to the stuff I was reading traditional life was terrific and um, whilst there were material things missing compared with perhaps life in Australia that wasn't the way it was felt or perceived. Um, and a lot of things that were highly valued and very important have been destroyed in the process of colonialisation in, in PNG. And we've seen the campaign in The Guardian in this last 12 months about the destruction of the forests in um, the Pacific region, including Papua New Guinea, mainly to create flooring timbers for Australian houses. Which now, ironically, are held up on the docks because they can't export it. No, <laughs> that's right. Yes. So, uh, for me, it's interesting, again, in this book by Josephine Flood, that the notion of leadership within Aboriginal societies was quite different to those in many other Indigenous societies, where whilst there were elders and there were spirits to inform the elders, there weren't the chiefs that you, you encounter in, in Africa and, and uh, North America and so on. And is that a style of leadership, the sort of notion of collaboration um, that we should be following? Well, I believe so. Um, and, and once again, I don't feel qualified to talk about it from the perspective of traditional societies. No, no, no. But um, in terms of our own society, it's pretty clear to me that um, in the sphere we're talking about, at least in education, if you want to get things done, you need to get people together arrive at some sorts of reasonably con consensus based decisions and try them out together um, and, and as things work you know build on them as they don't you change but the fundamental idea of uh, leaders building the capacity of the people that they're working with and then in turn building their own capacity so that community becomes more powerful I just don't see things getting done otherwise. I mean, my own experience um, here at USC for instance over 20 years USC has been a very active place, growing very fast and trying a lot of new things. Some of it forced on it because it was the only way to get resources into the place, but, but also uh, quite a lot of people here keen to, to try stuff out. The stuff that came from on high that was imposed may have been formally completed, but it won't last or it hasn't lasted and hasn't changed the way practice occurs um, in the important areas of the institution. The things that have lasted are the things that people have built from the ground up with support from people who have access to resources and power and ways of supporting them. I think Maria Rossetti's research group is a really fine example of that um, and it was a, a battle for her to be taken seriously in the context of um, the way we were developing research here through um, ARC discovery grants and that sort of things, different sort of research that she was starting out with. But her leadership skills are exemplary. Right. We had Maria on uh, as one of our early episodes. Ah, right. And um, if you look at her as a, an effective leader, and I certainly would from my conversations with her, what would you point to to say, well, that's the sort of leadership we should pursue?
Well, I think she would say this herself as well, is that the fundamental thing about it is that she's authentic and people know that she is. So she's not pulling wool. She's not running a line. Um, she's not trying to do this for her own aggrandisement. Right. Um, she's stuck to her principles and her values. Right. And I think she would say that for a while, in desperation, she actually moved away from them a bit in order to try and get on on, on the sort of research ladder. But she soon realised uh, that that wasn't going to work either. And since she went back with uh, to her, her basic first principles and worked differently, she was eventually so, so successful that the system recognised it. Right. For those who who might not have heard that that episode, Maria is uh, a professor of social marketing, which means that she is as responsive and responsible to people's reaction to marketing as marketing itself. So it has a sort of social impact, and uh, that's a large part of what it is she's researching. But you will also, or you might uh, also recall, that she was talking about growing into her aboriginality, and mm. I love that notion in terms of self-awareness. And for me, that's one of the key issues of leadership, self-awareness. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think that's what I mean by authenticity. Right. And people, I know Australians best, um, and, and so I'll say Australians have got really good bullshit detectors. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And so they will line themselves up with people who they think are fair dinkum. But if they think people are having a go at them or, or having, having them on uh, are inauthentic, you would get a dead bat. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, going back, to, I guess, to, the, to, to my opening, it's not just within education itself, of course, is it, the, the notion of leadership, but it's the fact that we're actually genuinely uh, forming, informing the leaders of tomorrow and that the world that they will be in is going to be so different from the world we're in today and that how do you therefore encourage within early schooling, going back to that notion, uh, the idea of authenticity and self-awareness? I think good teachers um, do this pretty much automatically um, by showing respect to, to the individuals that, the, that they're working with. And by, I mean, not many teachers totally didactic in the way they approach things anymore, especially at, say, primary school level, where a lot of these, these opportunities and propensities are laid down, I'm quite convinced. Um, so good teachers provide little leadership opportunities um, in the classroom and in the school community and those things are built into the fabric of the way um, schools work these days and I think school communities um, are very good at supporting them regardless of what's going on around them. Um, so those, those sorts of things are really important but I, as, as kids get older they need to develop some sort of, well not theory but but some sort of abstract understanding of what they're doing as well um, to be able to reflect on it. And, and so in a lot of ways, this is about being um, inducted into traditions. I mean, our traditions uh, no less influential, no less important in um, modern society compared with traditional society. So I think as students start to find the curriculum spreading out in, into disciplines like um, instead of just doing sort of social studies they start to do some history um, and some geography uh, and they start to do some English literature and, and they start to do some physics and chemistry and, and things start to, to move to that level of their education. They're really being introduced to a whole world of ways of seeing and doing and that leads me into a sort of a broad perspective on how things change being at the centre of students learning to be leaders and I think it's very important for uh, anybody who wants to lead to have an understanding of, of 
how things can change because leadership leadership's fundamentally about um, desired change and uh, I'm not sure that we're that good at that part of schooling at this stage. Um, I don't know how you found it because you've worked in the sort of futures zone and I think that's an area that's developed a lot over the last 20 or 30 years and, and I think it's um, found its way into schools in bits and pieces um, and, and that's probably loaded with some principles about um, how things change and how things stay the same but I, I think it stands out really as, as an example. I think for me what it's revealed is somewhat less than fortunate. I think that what it reveals is people are extraordinarily non-imaginative and, and quite conservative so it's uh, and linear and all those yeah. things so that people extrapolate into the future rather than trying to anticipate something that's going to be absolutely yeah. different. Yeah. And that's always a disappointment for me. And I guess that leads to less focus on what we do now in order to um, create a positive future, I suppose. One of the interesting things, I, I have an um, eight-year-old grandson amongst my tribe of grandchildren, and uh, he is, is currently living uh, with me, uh, with his mum. And um, he came to me the other day and he said, Grandad, could you, uh, could you help me with a school project for Expo? I said, oh, what's an expo? Uh, this is eight-year-old. And he said, we know we all uh, illustrate our scientific... Uh, what? <laughs> I said, what's yours? He said, friction. I said, what? <laughs> I didn't know the word friction until I was about 20. Yeah. And he had checked up on the internet a way of making what's essentially a, a hovercraft uh, using a balloon and a valve and yeah. a piece of cardboard. So we built this thing, and I went to the expo, and it was filled with all sorts of different inventions. And, and that, that sort of thing used to be uh, for first-year engineering students at university. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, um, that's part of my, my thinking about um, the introduction of students into, into traditions, and I think we've got much better at it, and I, and I, and I think it's much more um, real uh, rather than the sort of as you say, rote learning that you and I might have experienced mm. a lot of. But one of the things I think also that it, uh, I've uncovered in the work that I've been doing, to my satisfaction, is people's inability to deal with two vital issues. One is uncertainty, um, that so much in family life and in school uh, is directed towards a level of certainty. This is what's going to happen. Um, and the other one is, is the simplification. that We always tend to try and simplify stuff all yeah. the time. In the last episode, we were talking uh, uh, about COVID and talking about the magic bullet that's the vaccine and people saying, well, that's the silver bullet, that's it. Yeah. You know, we fixed it yeah. as if we had, which, of course, we haven't. <laughs> so, and when it comes to something like climate change, that it's so complex. So, so the classrooms of today uh, in universities as well as schools, are they really dealing with those issues of uncertainty? And oh, I think there's lots of examples where they are. And, of course lots of parts where they aren't and that's a sort of obvious thing to say uh, but, uh, but I don't know whether it's um, better now than it was or worse than it was or the same I really don't know um, but, I, but I do think that the tendency for people to be uh, a bit conservative I think that's sort of what you're suggesting um, is understandable uh, in a circumstance where a lot of the sort of life world uh, that people live in particularly for young people, uh, has been eroded by the loss of community in all sorts of forms. And I think there's a lot of trepidation, a lot of real worry 
and a lot of sense of where are the norms you know where, where can what can I be certain about in my environment so I, I don't I don't really find it surprising that that people are seeking certainty rather than sort of being very imaginative and, and striving for a sort of some sort of you know fantastic future I think this is a bit of the nature of the times that we're in well I mean the, the terms of, of times we are in I was at school uh, in primary school just uh, well, at the end of the first, of the Second World War, mm. uh, and um, and the post-war period in Britain, which was an extraordinarily austere and, and pretty awful time. Yeah. But we 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 are certain about we never wanted war anymore. Yeah. I mean, that came through everything, yeah. and so there was a touchstone. Yes. That life is better because we're no longer at war. Yeah, but there's also that sense that there are a lot of people look back on that time and it was the happiest time of their lives. And it strikes me that it was because there was um, a, a sort of a, a consensus in the community that, that we knew what we were fighting for. We knew what we had to do and we were all in it together. Um, and it was a very intense sort of period. We lack that in a lot of ways now. Yes. And, you know, I've noticed it with my own sons that they really worry about the future of, say, the environment. Um, and they see a depleted future in a lot of ways, and, th- and they've made quite deliberate decisions not to have children. Is that right? On the basis of wow. that. Wow. And I think there's a lot That's of... That's authenticity, if ever there was. <laughs> yes. That's extraordinary. I mean, you never know, circumstances might alter and that may change, but that's certainly the way they think. And, and I remember thinking a bit like that too, during the Cold War, um, when the th- nuclear threat was quite heightened, right. um, thinking you, you wouldn't want to bring kids into this world. It's hard to imagine, really, that it could have been worse than it is at the moment. Well, you know, I mean, I'm obviously very grateful that my parents didn't make that sort of decision because <laughs> they came through my father. You know, I mean, they came through the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War. Amazing generation. Uh, yeah, and they still were optimistic enough to have children. Don, it's been a delight talking to you. Thanks so much. We've covered a whole lot of ground in a very short time, and I hope that in the future we can have you back again and explore in more detail some of the things you've raised. Thanks very much. Very and thank kind. you all for listening. And I look forward to meeting you again in our next episode. From me, Richard Hall, goodbye.